Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! <laughs> What's good, everybody? Welcome to the Forbidden Technique podcast on the Fight Site Podcast Network with myself, your host, Silas Martin, my co-host, as always, Christian Reynolds. And today, we've got a pretty fucking sick UFC pay-per-view to get into. Uh, kind of actually way better than the last one, particularly like lower down on the card. There's just way more depth to this card beyond the few uh, really meaningful fights at the top. And, you know, there's just a, a good balance of... Prospect tests, uh, weird mismatches, old man shit kickings, uh, everything you need for a good complete card. And um, with a main event that is genuinely just magnificently fucking hilarious to me that this fight is even happening. Of course, Israel Adesanya defending his middleweight title in mixed martial arts, of course, against former kickboxing rival Alex Pereira. You know, as soon as I saw that Alex Pereira was getting some sick knockouts against a hideously outmatched competition on the regionals, I was like, holy shit, we got to get this guy in the UFC. We got to just give him like three fights and then have him fight Darren Till and then just give him a title shot. Like, just have him avoid Gerald Mearshart or Derek Brunson, anyone like that just because it'd be fun. I didn't think it would ever happen because I, I didn't. I either thought just Pereira wouldn't put together the wins or that the UFC wouldn't care, uh, particularly enough to match him up with Sean Strickland in, like, what, his third fight in the UFC? <laughs> um, just the perfect matchup to get him into the, this situation. So we're here. It's fantastic. Of course, Alex Pereira, 2-0. Uh, and oh against Israel Adesanya in kickboxing. Um, I feel like I probably don't have to explain this to most of the people that listen to this show because you guys are all fucking smart and you know what's good because you listen to this show. But the first one was like a flagrant robbery that Israel Adesanya clearly won. And um, in the second fight, I guess it seemed like Israel had to just like be way more aggressive and put a stamp on the fight because he didn't want to get robbed again. So he was like fucking styling on Pereira and just like having way more exchanges but also with fucking destroying Pereira. Yeah, it should have been finished arguably at one point. Yeah, I mean he, it, there was a standing eight count um and then Izzy just got fucking decked out of nowhere with a disgusting left hook and sent to the shadow realm. So on the one hand you look at that and you go well Israel Adesanya should just win easily then. Um you know he has a perfect style for diffusing a counterpuncher like uh, Alex Pereira because, you know, he has a ton of reach and he faints a ton. He hides his intentions very well and he builds off of, like, non-committal strikes and faints until, you know, he's really got his opponent guessing and he he can open up with, like, more significant damaging offense as the fight goes deeper. The, the, then you have to ask the question, when was the last time Israel Adesanya looked anything like he did in that kickboxing match with Pereira. Like, he's pared down his game a lot, become a lot more conservative, 
um, a lot more defensively focused because, you know, I guess he's been settling into a championship style, but also has just not been competing in high-level kickboxing for quite some time at this point and has been focused on developing this, like, well-rounded three-dimensional approach to MMA, whereas Pereira has just been like, well, I can already do kickboxing. I just need to... I just need to be able to do as much wrestling and grappling as I need to do and just leverage being fucking huge and strong and just just do what I did in kickboxing and just knock people out easily. So, yeah, the fact that Israel Adesanya has just been letting people hang around, you know, he beat Jared Cannonier pretty easily, but let him into a couple of the rounds in that fight. You have the, also have the fact that Israel Adesanya has never really liked people who are at height and reach parity with him. So all of that combined with Pereira's speed, his timing, his countering ability, and his just absolutely sickening power, um, the fact that we've seen him be losing to Israel Adesanya and just deck him with a single punch, and the fact that at this point, Pereira is the one fighting more like either guy did... Uh, at their best as an elite kickboxer at this point in their respective mixed martial arts careers. So, you know, basically since this fight uh, got booked, um, I've been trying to figure out which is the funnier thing for me to pick between Pereira by knockout or Adesanya by, like, high elbow guillotine submission. But I'm obviously <laughs> going to pick uh, Pereira to, to just nuke Izzy at some point with a left hook again. It just feels like such a self-fulfilling prophecy, the the way the whole story has played out up to this point. It, it's the only thing that makes sense. Yeah, I th I think that the way that Izzy has pared down his game is very smart and works well towards being able to handle a wrestler or handle anyone that wants to grapple him with any authority. But it really, really is a, a very substantial drawback against someone like Pereira who he doesn't have to worry about grappling at all against. Uh, like it, it mostly seems like any improvement Adesanya's made in the last five years has directly correlated to him having a harder match against Pereira, because like at their best in kickboxing, Adesanya's a fucking terrible matchup for Pereira. And though he did uh, get robbed in the first fight, it's still there's the precedent of if you let him in long enough, like Pereira has good optics, so Pereira is able to kind of like win over the judges just on being scary. He's done that a few times in his kickboxing career where he would uh, win robberies uh, while Adesanya had the reverse. He got robbed quite a few times just because he kind of lets fights get too close looking even when they aren't that close. I feel like, for example, the, the second Robert Whitaker fight where a lot of people kind of thought it was a lot closer than it was. So, honestly, I might pick like Alex Pereira by robbery decision. Uh... I, I just I really don't expect Adesanya to look anywhere near he did even in the Wilkinson fight. Like I watched Vittori Yeah, I watched the Vittori fight, I watched the Brad Tavares fight, I watched the Rob Wilkinson fight, and I watched the uh Paulo Costa fight. And the difference in Adesanya's striking capability between like his entire title run and his UFC debut is stark. Like, in the, his first UFC fight, he got taken down by a guy that was kind of brought in as a cant for his to knock out. 
but he also easily outclassed him on the feet, even with the wrestling threat. And then towards the end, he looked incredibly confident and had no difficulty at all dealing with the wrestling and just kind of got to tear his ass up with uh, really short counters and at the end kind of long form combination punching he basically finished it with a hammer fist to the body in Adesanya he's not shown that level of creativity or like finesse since he became a champion the Paulo Costa fight's about the closest he's looked to his former self but even then it was a very pared down performance where he was being very cautious and seemed and it was against an opponent that completely shit the bed it was target practice yeah, and he seemed very dead set on on outclassing him and making Costa look bad, more so than just going out and fucking him up. But it, it was kind of a result of uh, him outclassing him that he just kind of fucked him up. Uh, also, the fact that Costa doesn't really know how to deal with low kicks. So, like, Pereira just, he has everything that Jan Blahovich had that made him beat Adesanya, because people kind of forget that Adesanya lost a kickboxing match to a guy about the same size as Pereira recently that isn't as good as Alex Pereira at, at kickboxing. And is a lot slower and like like weighs more but is similar in terms of physical dimensions and isn't the kind of just ridiculous instant kill shot puncher that Pereira is. Yeah, and the Polish power is like good and all, but Alex Pereira has actually nearly killed people for minutes just by touching them. He has kickboxing matches where, in big gloves, he would hit someone very glancing, and then they would be out for, like, almost five minutes straight. Yeah, I remember when we watched his uh, LFA fight against Thomas Powell, which was just, like, uh, I get that he had to, like, accrue some kind of regional MMA experience, but uh, this guy just got left hooked and was unconscious for so long, and all of the officials are looking around at each other like, oh. Jesus, are we going to get sued because a guy died in a dumb mismatch? Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure one of us went to the bathroom, and then when we got back, the guy was in the exact same position, unconscious. Yeah. Like, we were just, like, watching to the end of the video to be like, oh my god, does he ever wake up? It's hard not to pick Pereira in this matchup for me. Um, Even though I think Adesanya originally was a really hard match for Pereira, but with his skill regression, that it could just be him, like, fighting to the level of his competition. Adesanya's really always had that problem. In kickboxing and in MMA, he just fights his opponent more so than imposing his game the way he wants to. And his best performances tend to be when he just disregards his opponent and just goes and does whatever he wants to do. Or at least his most aesthetically pleasing performances or impressive ones. Yeah, it's the ones where he's like, well, fuck, Rob Wick is bad, I'm just going to go knock him out. And he just does. Yeah, like he had he had some planning going into the first Rob fight, but it really just made him look like, oh, this is an elite kickboxer fighting an MMA fighter who is billed as a striker. He He's just going to like find what he needs to do to kill shot the guy a couple times because the guy's counterable. Whereas this one, it's just a guy that has reach parity and is not dissimilar to the Jan Blachowicz matchup. I guess the fact that Pereira isn't really as much of a jabber at all, uh, he's probably not going to be like competing in a jabbing battle with Izzy, I don't think. At least not. I don't really expect him to. He certainly can. Like, Pereira's good at jabbing if he has to. But he, he's, he's more of like a... Tends to lead with kicks more. 
Yeah, and and in the prayer or in the Strickland fight, he was jabbing the body to like set up the left hook to the head. I don't think Izzy's gonna be getting caught by that shit. Yeah, I think he respects Izzy like more than Sean Strickland to just be like, oh, I can just come in with one tactic to instantly kill this guy. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And the the left hook gets brought up, but like the knees are also an issue. Uh, I don't think in particular they're that much of an issue for Adesanya in this matchup because they're probably going to be very far away. I mean, the, the regular straight punches are an issue from Pereira. They certainly are. Yeah, uh, I, I think that both fighters are going to neutralize each other's kicks and if anyone is able to neutralize the other one's kicks better, it will probably be Adesanya. Yeah. Because we have to also assume that Adesanya's performances have been heavily informed by like him fighting people that can wrestle. So maybe Adesanya is just as good as he ever was, maybe even better at striking. Uh, even if he only regressed a little bit, he still has room to win the matchup because, you know, Pereira had kind of struggles against Bruno Silva and Bruno Silva is a very good striker but he's not Adesanya or Pereira level and he kind of fought his way into the fight just by being scrappy and and like really durable so Pereira is not infallible at all he definitely has room to look pretty bad in the matchup if Adesanya starts getting things going plus Pereira getting older it's been a long time since their first fights, and Pereira, though very good in his recent kickboxing career, he was on the downswing, certainly. And it seems like he's more of in a situation of going to MMA when he's kind of tapering off in his career and his athleticism, while still at probably his peak punching power, and he's, he's not really much slower. I just think he's, he's like due for a, a, any, any moment now he's going to start looking a markedly worse. While Adesanya really went into MMA at the beginning of his athletic prime, or, or like in the middle of his athletic prime, and then just kind of carried it on for a long time now, like Adesanya is still as physically good as he's ever been. And I think a big difference between their kickboxing matches and this fight is Adesanya's a lot fucking stronger now. Like, you look at his physicality, he is very clearly put on a lot of weight, and he's a lot stronger now. Which I don't know how much that's actually going to be useful in this matchup. Because he doesn't seem to have gained very much punching power from it. And it's mostly geared towards like grappling defense. So, it's a weird situation. It's very hard to analyze fight, mostly because we haven't seen either guy fight someone very similar to their opponent recently. But we have seen them fight each other like six years ago. In a different rule set before Pereira just... Like, chased one of his old rivals to a different sport to get a big payday. <laughs> Pretty much. It's a it's a very strange fight to analyze, but I'm going to go with the kind of boring but also fun pick of Alex Pereira by robbery decision. I, I've talked myself into it. I think it's going to be funny. So do you think there's any chance that Pereira just like falls over throwing a kick and stands up into a guillotine? Uh, it's a possibility, but also, Pereira's got good, good balance. I don't think he's gonna fall over. Do you think Izzy will shoot? I think if Izzy gets hurt, he actually might. But I also think his chances of getting hurt and not instantly dying are pretty low. You don't think he'll even do it once just to be like, ah, this is an MMA fight, bitch. Oh, I I should rephrase. I think he's gonna show it a lot, like too much even. 
Like, he could show it to the point of getting need some. I think it would be, just to, like, like, hypothetically, I think it would be really good matchup-wise, uh, or, or, like, a really good strategy for Adesanya to just, like, press the grappling really hard for, like, a, the first minute of the fight and then just abandon it completely and start going balls to the wall with volume. Like, just putting his best combinations on him, because... Prayer is a good counterpuncher. You just but start doing like Chad Mendez, like double legs into uppercuts and shit. Yeah, like I think if Adesanya really wanted to, he could try and just fuck up Pereira something fierce in the early part of the fight because Adesanya's not necessarily a slow starter. He just tends to want to build into things. But, you know, we've seen him uh, be able to like, look pretty good in the early parts of fights. It's not that he takes a while to get on, it's that he normally wants reads, but I don't think he's gonna necessarily have that problem in this fight as much, just off of familiarity with his opponent. And Pereira has not changed much at all since their first fights. Uh, he Like, his shot selection's basically the same. If anything, he's just gotten better at it, but... I. It's such a hard matchup to to pick, honestly. Because so much of me wants to be like, oh, haha, Adesanya is going to get knocked out because he got knocked out before. But there's a lot more nuance to it than that. He really might not, but it would be so cool. Yeah, like Adesanya could just win by being like still as good as he used to be. He just hasn't shown it in his recent fights. Like, he hasn't had to bring out all of his striking skill set, and he's really not a guy that's going to overbeat someone. But then why why wouldn't he? He didn't need to against Brad Tavares. Because that was him making a statement, like, early in his career. Yeah, I guess. Or, like, early in his UFC career. The championship mentality. Yeah, I think that him defending his champion is, like, it's a lot more He's he just is willing to do the easy way to win, which respect that but also you could finish these people and he could also make sure that he never has to fight robert whitaker again had he knocked him out in the second fight but instead he just easily decisioned him in a way that wasn't as easy looking as it actually was yeah in the way that he's totally gonna have to fight him a third time when rob easily beats um paul acosta um, ex- except he's not because uh, Pereira is going to be the champion uh, when that happens. So because he's going to knock Israel out with a left hook. Yeah, and then Rob is going to like easily take down Pereira like seven times and then got knocked out because he can't hold anyone down. Okay, so co-main event, another one that's really hard to figure out what's going to happen for me because you know we got, we got Carlos Barza uh, defending the strawweight championship, of course, against uh, Zhang Wei Li. And just, like, the prevailing feeling for some time is that any, like, good, well-rounded, large, physical, modern strawweight is just going to easily destroy Carlos Bars, and it keeps not happening. Um, so, Christian, is there any reason that Zhang Weili isn't just going to easily destroy Carlos Bars? Uh, if we go by old information and think, oh, you know... Zhang had some, like, harder fights that involved grappling early on in her UFC career. Uh, then I guess you could say that, but... I mean, she had one not that long ago against Rose Namajunas. Not that long ago, but also Rose Namajunas is a, a markedly better and more athletic grappler. 
or at least like dangerous grappler. Yeah. Lest we forget, um, and well, to be fair, we definitely should forget that fight. I mean, just one of the things that made uh, the Nami Yunez Esparza fight such a fucking baffling performance from Rose was that Rose so easily won every committed grappling exchange that happened in that fight. And it seemed like if she put her foot on the gas at any point at all, she could have maybe just gotten a finish immediately. Or, like, she literally would not have had to have done very much at all to have just won the, the fight because nothing happened. Um, but, you know, the second fight between Rose and Zhang was was pretty close. Like, after Zhang hurt Rose with a right hand early, it mostly just became a grappling match where whoever got a good takedown entry and got on top first just ended up winning that round. I think the most dangerous thing for Spars in this matchup is that in Zhang's last fight, uh, she looked like fucking Habib against Ioana and Jacek, who Carlos Barza years ago, when Ioana was a worse takedown defender, just like couldn't get any takedowns on, or, or could like barely do anything. She she got into some all right positions, like shot wise, but then Ioana just was very scrappy and kind of fought herself out of those situations. Well, recent Joanna, or like ever since she got the title release, her takedown defense has been just fucking ridiculous. And Zhang, just on being a very physical force and having trained wrestling a lot recently, uh, just hossed the shit out of her. So I think that Zhang is now closer to Tatiana Suarez than Carlos Barza would prefer. Yeah, it looked like it in that Joanna fight, even, even though Joanna, you know, that was... You know, she retired after that fight, but she didn't look shot or anything. It was it was a perfect time to retire. She still looked like Joanna. And, you know, for all of the, like, incredible journey that Carla Esparza has had to get back to this point and all the hard matchups that she's had to beat uh, to get the belt back, um, if Joanna and Jacek came out of retirement tomorrow, do you think uh, a fight between her and Carlos Barza would look any different to the fight that they had in 2015, where Joanna and Jacek easily neutralized all of Carlos Barza's wrestling attempts and destroyed her on the feet in two rounds? I think that if... I, I'm pretty sure that Rosa Munez is the only one of the big four at uh, strawweight that there's even a remote window for Esparza winning, and it's basically because Rosnami Yunez is kind of easily flusterable and fights weird sometimes. Yeah, it all comes down to Rosnami Yunez shitting the bed and, like, carrying the baggage of their first fight with her. And, you know, it worked, but... Like I said, Rose Namajunas would have had to have done so little in that fight to have just won it easily. So, like, uh, Zhang kind of going life and death in his tepid wrestling match with Rose Namajunas kind of isn't really enough for me to think that Carlos Barza is going to be able to have any grappling success against Zhang Weili. And like I said, she all this time... She's just still, like, one of the best wrestlers in the division and has not gotten better at striking at all. And, like, any extended uh, uh, exchanges they have on the feet, if Zhang is just, like, actually pressing exchanges and Esparza can't get takedowns going, she's going to get so incredibly knocked out. Yeah, I I think of the, the big four at uh, 115, there is... The four queens. Yeah, there's actually no chance that... Uh, Asparza beats 
two of them. And then this is one of the ones she might actually be able to win in theory. But it's really just on old information. I think that Zhang is certainly good enough at grappling at this point and strong enough to where there's not an avenue for Asparza to be getting any offense done on the ground. I think that Zhang probably just hosses her and knocks her out within a couple rounds. Maybe even submits her, because Asparza is a very tiny uh, fighter for the division, uh, despite being a grappler, while Zhang is not. Zhang is a large 115. I don't think it's going to look really remotely competitive at all, but... No, me neither, but Carla Esparza just keeps working the magic somehow. And when I say that this is one of the matchups she can win, I basically mean Joanna Yunjacek and Jessica Andrade 100% of the time easily outclass or, like, dominate the fuck out of Carla Esparza. And it wouldn't even be remotely competitive, whereas this one, I could see Jean kind of getting getting in her own head as well. Because she did get it in her own head for the second Rose fight, we can't forget. She got knocked out and then was like, oh, I need to completely revamp the way I fight, even though she kind of just got knocked out by chance. Like, shit happens. Sometimes you get head kicked. Yeah, but I can also uh, understand a slight over-adjustment, particularly for someone who's never been finished and like been in some crazy wars and stuff, to... To, to come in, like, having a lot of respect for someone who just iced her in a minute. I don't think she's going to look at Carla Esparza and, and have that same respect. No, and she shouldn't, because if she fights her with any respect, we've seen what happens with that. Like, Rosa Mijanez in the second fight. Okay, so Dustin Poirier is fighting Michael Chandler. Of course, uh, neither of these guys uh ever going to just fight outside of the inner circle of lightweight at this point whatever they've earned it they all just get to fight each other and get paid and these two haven't fought each other yet so that's they have not um so i gotta give michael chandler his due credit because uh he's always a wacky athletic x-factor who can just fucking do some shit even at this stage of his career dustin poirier has had issues with wrestlers. And, you know, he's not unknockoutable. Michael Chandler still hits extremely fucking hard. Um, and, you know, I've just... Uh, I've undersold Michael Chandler somewhat going into some of these matchups. Like, I assumed he was just going to get knocked out in, like, the first exchange with Justin Gaethje. And he didn't. But he also didn't come close to winning. But, you know, still, still had a good fight. And I assumed he was just going to easily deck Tony Ferguson, and he kind of did, but he got into trouble early, uh, specifically because uh, the absolute shell of Tony Ferguson just came out like Southpaw and threw away a long jab to get Michael Chandler moving backwards and then clanged him with a big wide left hand as Chandler was exiting and dropped him. Um, kind of sounds like some shit Dustin Poirier does to me. And like I say... The wrestling could be a factor if Michael Chandler actually pursues it. You know, it wasn't really there against Justin Gaethje because he shot a really nice double leg and Justin Gaethje is such a... Uh, for all his issues as a grappler, he's a ridiculously explosive scrambler in the first layer and just did a Gramby roll that sent Michael Chandler flying. But the main reason I'm going to pick Dustin Poirier is just, like, directionality and the fact that Dustin Poirier can survive moving backwards. And, you know, for all of Dustin Poirier's flaws, you know, the amount of just hideous, life-altering wars that would have destroyed most normal people he's been through um, have just, like, all that experience has just given him 
a, a really quite like all-terrain striking approach that actually works m- moving in different directions. He can handle himself on the back foot behind jabs and kicks and walk people onto counters. He has pretty good defense. He has a very adaptive guard. He has his whole fucking crawdad guard thing that he does. Um, you can also just chase people back with blitzes and track people along the cage and kill them. He's a huge puncher and has infinite cardio. And then the issue with Michael Chandler is his mechanics when moving backwards in literally any situation are just bad and he routinely gets fucked up just uh, hopping backwards out of range with his hands out because he's used to just being so much fucking faster than his opponents and he... For all the good fighters that he beat in his like uh, long and storied career as Bellator lightweight champion, they they were all kind of like little stocky guys like him. Um, I think he, like he just has an issue fighting people who have reach on him and can kind of exploit his uh, issues when he's moving backwards, even in singular moments. You know, it's how he got dropped against Tony. It's, how the finishing sequence started against Charles Oliveira, and there we also see the issues that Chandler has with getting himself off of the fence when he's fucked up and being pursued. So I am going to pick Dustin Poirier by knockout, but Michael Chandler can always do some shit. What do you think, Christian? Uh, I agree with most of what you said. I think that Dustin's ability to go forward is pretty limited, at least in his recent run, because I can't think of anyone he's fought recently that he actually like came forward at intentionally it was more like he would hurt someone or he would stand his ground against them he didn't really come forward against really any of them uh, it, was, it was either going backwards and like just trying to outbox or holding his ground and then going forward whenever he gets an opportunity to like the connor fights he, he mostly just took the back foot and then if he landed something he would start getting aggressive or if he wanted to threaten some grappling he'd get aggressive uh, and then, you know, the Dan Hooker fight, a lot of that fight was contested with him in doing, like, small shifts forward or just standing his ground or moving backwards. He wasn't really pressuring. And I, I do think pressuring against Chandler is by far the best strategy, and I think the fact that Dustin moves back so much actually lets Chandler into the fight a lot more than it should. Like, I think that Chandler is going to come forward pressuring and probably put Dustin in uncomfortable positions for at least a round, but Chandler is way more liable to get, like, really fucking tired trying to wrestle someone in the first round, and... But it's it's hard for me not to just assume that if that happens for a round, then Dustin will be broken going into the second and third, because Dustin Poirier, I love him, but you can break him with grappling, uh in a way that you cannot break him in a war. You can break him with grappling, but you've really got to keep him in that just in that fight that just makes him fucking miserable because, like, if he gets any moments on the feet between that, he will just get extremely mad and lash out and start chasing people around the cage and punching them. Like, it even happened in spots against Khabib. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, against Oliveira, though, he really just had a round on bottom and then was like, I'm done. Yeah. It, like, it, the first round was crazy, and I get that the disappointment of going from, I'm about to knock this guy the fuck out, that he had going into the second round, uh, then turning into, oh, I just spent the round on my back, uh, kind of unceremoniously. I got elbowed a little bit, but they weren't, like, the most damaging elbows ever. It was just kind of some light damage, and, like, 
kind of grinding him out, and it worked so easily for Charles. Uh, and, of course, Charles is a lot better at keeping someone on the ground, and he's a lot harder of a grappling-style matchup against uh, Poirier than I think Chandler is. But Chandler's a lot more insistent of a wrestler, and I could see him doing things like... Is he? Normally. Is he? Has he ever been? I mean, he can do a double leg. He definitely against, can. And he'll go forward. He can definitely do the double leg. But when has that ever been like a, a centerpiece of a performance from him? Apart from when he started getting fucked up by Tony Ferguson. And then he's still like got fucked up from Tony Ferguson being on bottom. And I, I, you know, I think if like Dustin puts the Chandler in the kind of spots that old Tony did, he just, he just chases him down and kills him. Yeah. Tony's a lot longer though. And his shot selection's a lot harder to, to like put your finger on. He's so much more shot. Like Dustin yeah, Poirier isn't but... shot. This isn't shot. Chandler also kind of fought Tony as if he was fighting prime Tony, which was weird. It seemed like he, he respected him far more than he should have, and then the second he stopped respecting him, he knocked him out. That's the other thing. You just you, you never know what you're going to get from Michael Chandler. Yeah, like, Michael Chandler isn't the most consistent grappler in his UFC career, but it's because against Dan Hooker, the threat of it was enough to knock him out. Against Gaethje, it's not really an option. Against Charles, it's an active liability to be constantly grappling if you haven't hurt him. Uh, and then... I think there's only even only even been a few fights throughout his Bellator run where that was what like defined his approach. Like he 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 likes just chasing people down and knocking them out. He does, but he's able to hold people down if he really gets an opportunity to. And at worst, I've seen him like hold people down for like a few minutes before, and even just that, or like getting us double leg and then ground and pounding him as he's as Dustin's standing up. I think. Could be enough to frazzle him. That, combined with the fact that Dustin really does not like people shifting at him, uh, he's he's not bad at dealing with it. He just it's a style preference. He, he prefers to have his opponent maintain their stance. Uh, all that being said, um, I lied earlier. I'm not picking Dustin Poirier for all the technical reasons I said. I'm picking him because I like him. Yeah, I I just it's hard for me to pick. Dustin Poirier against a grappler until he beats a single one in his in his UFC run, or, or not in his UFC run in his recent run. Because you you look at Dustin Poirier's record and you see the the two like committed grapplers he's fought, he he got easily like shit on by or not easily I guess in Charles' case, but in a, a very replicable way. But they're also the best ones in the division Certainly. ever. They're not just in the division. They're the two best grapplers maybe in the sport. Ever. But, you know, there's there's the Danny Castillo fight back in the day. It's still in Dustin to have that kind of fight. Um, I just don't even know if Michael Chandler is like... I just don't know if he has it in him to have that fight at this point. Maybe not. But also, Eddie Alvarez in, their second, in the second fight with Dustin, he was on top of him and then there was a weird thing with the the downward elbow that is why he got stood up but he was kind of on the way to breaking dustin <laughs> if it wasn't for them having so much like heavily contested of a fight on the feet uh then i think eddie alvarez was a good enough wrestler to just kind of hold down dustin and break him eventually because in the first fight it was kind of trending towards that the second fight it was trending towards that and then just some weird shit happened 
Like, there was some context in those matchups that makes me think that they're a lot more informative for this matchup than I would otherwise believe. Yeah, Eddie Alvarez also got knocked out, like, four or five times over the course of those yeah, two fights. Yeah, but Eddie Alvarez gets knocked out in every fight. Every fight I mean, he yeah. as well. But, but that's the thing, when Michael Chandler gets knocked out, he usually just gets knocked out. Not really against, uh, like, Justin Gaethje. He got he got buzzed by Justin Gaethje really hard, and then ended up lasting 15 minutes against a guy that, in a vacuum, I think hits about as hard or harder, and is also more likely to blindside you. Whereas Dustin is more just likely to land some clubbing shots that are really good. Yeah, I think Justin, uh, um, I think Dustin's like way better at just chasing people down and killing them when he get, hurts you with in, in individual moments, though. Oh, certainly, he's genuinely a, a dramatically better finisher, but he's a worse shot takedown defender and Definitely. Chandler even even when hurt still made Gaethje have to sprawl really hard and then Gaethje had to defend the entire time just like while Chandler was holding onto a leg because Chandler's very strong. Are you gonna fucking pick Michael Chandler then you little bitch? I mean no I'm gonna pick Dustin Poirier I just I think it's been weird how all Very the good. discourse around the fight has been about how Dustin just can easily win whenever it's like a fucking rough matchup for him. Not like rough in the sense that he's he's likely to lose it necessarily but rough in that there's avenues that Chandler could make him look bad. We cannot forget that Dustin Poirier was getting wrestled by Dan Hooker somewhat recently. Michael Chandler also might just give him the bonk. Yeah, I feel like that's less likely. Because even if he does bonk him really hard, I think Dustin will just be like, I'm fine. But I could see Dustin maybe getting hit by like a shifting left overhand and then Chandler uh, like diving for a takedown and then getting on top of him also guillotine is an option for both people uh like chandler could get a 10 finger guillotine as dustin's standing up dustin could just be like oh hey this is the moment i've been training for someone shorter than me that i can actually guillotine what the fuck oh yeah somebody's gonna be jumping some guillotines in this fight (laughs) there's gonna be a guillotine attempted i i am almost 100 certain of but i think i'm gonna pick uh Dustin round one knockout because I think that's like the the best avenue for him to get a, a win where he looks good and not unlikely in the slightest. I think if Chandler wins, uh, it'll be on the fact that Dustin is not necessarily the best counter puncher when it comes to single shot counters on someone that is coming at him exaggeratedly. It's more. Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't. I wouldn't exactly expect uh, Poirier to do something with something like when uh, Patricia Ferrer knocked out Michael Chandler, just like timed him on a blitz and iced him like for entering like a fucking lunatic. Yeah, like Dustin's not gonna hit him with the fucking Aldo McGregor, and I feel like though Dustin's a good counterpuncher, it's just not really in his style to land that type of counter. He's not really like a, a backstepping power straight guy. Also, I mentioned that uh, Dustin doesn't like people shifting at him. Fucking Chandler hates it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it really disrupts his shot selection, and also it normally gets him to go backwards 100% of the time. Which, have, as we've discussed, can be an, literally an instant death sentence for Michael Chandler. Though we also have to mark that Dustin doesn't have much room in the kicking game. Uh, I, I think he, he could get good success with Doesn't it. he? It's just he's probably not going to go if, for it. What if he lands one calf kick and Michael Chandler's leg falls off? It's definitely an option. That's the other thing. I, 
I just find it hard to trust Michael Chandler in in wars because he has had something of the Anthony Pettis thing where he's just had such a such a hard career with so many wars where he depends on his athleticism to bail him out that like bits of him just start falling off in fights. They definitely do, but he was fine against Gaethje. He was. It it definitely surprised me. I need to bear that in mind. But then, but then, are you going to be surprised if Dustin Poirier just just comes out and and backs him up with some throwaway shots and shifts and clangs him with a big left hand on an exit and then just chases him down on, along the cage and and just finishes him immediately? I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. But I also wouldn't be surprised if Dustin like clangs him with something and then shifts into something. And while he's shifting, he squares his stance and then gets double legged off his feet and then held down for the rest of the round and then breaks uh, round later. Yeah, but that would be lame. So stop saying it, and let's talk about let's talk about the next fight. That's fair. Uh, Frankie Edgar is fighting Chris Gutierrez. <laughs> in- Chris, Chris, I, I, I have two questions. First one: Why is Frankie Edgar fighting Chris Gutierrez? And secondly, is Frankie Edgar finally get low kick TKO'd? Okay. The reason that they have him fighting him, I believe, is because the UFC is thinking Chris Gutierrez is good enough for Frankie to maybe beat, because Gutierrez is an alright defensive wrestler, certainly, but Frankie Edgar, at his best, was a very good wrestler, and it seems within the UFC's understanding of matchmaking that this could be a difficult fight for Gutierrez, so it's also a a bit of a test for him. Uh, but also, there's so much upside because Gutierrez is a decent fighter and he's he's ex- somewhat exciting to watch and kind of offers a good amount at the upper medium level of bantamweight to where it's valuable to get him a matchup like this where he gets to low kick TKO an old guy. Uh, and then the second qu- uh, question you asked was, is he going to low kick TKO him? And I think almost certainly. That was my first reaction when I saw the match. I was like, oh, Frank Edgar uh, does, has not liked low kicks in his bantamweight run and didn't love him at any point in his featherweight run, but he was a bit better at handling them. He would normally be able to like time takedowns on it or just flat out defend the leg kick better. But it seems like that's gone away a lot or at least eroded heavily. So... I'm going to pick Chris Gutierrez by Loki TKO. I know we just spent like 40 minutes talking about the first three fights, but this one I'm like, yeah, Frankie Edgar's getting Loki TKO'd because I can't imagine Chris Gutierrez fighting an old guy that is low kickable and not just being like, oh, I'll just, I'll just kick his leg a few times. Yeah, I mean, Chris Gutierrez is very good at low kicking people. That is the main thing that he seems to do. Um, you know, he mostly seems to like to emphasize this like high mobility style uh, wants to use like a lot of like lateral movement and stuff to put just put himself at a nice distance to kick the shit out of people's calves and like jab them and get them chasing him to like land nice counters on the way in and stuff um his defensive wrestling not great um his ring craft as well is like 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 his ring craft is okay and he has some neat ideas about getting himself off of the cage, but they're mostly just about like trying to get people to swing at him and ducking under and pivoting out. Um, you can shoot on him while he's doing that, and people have, and he's not a great scrambler, and once he gets in positions, he struggles to improve them. He'll kind of like he'll he'll give his back to try and get up, 
and like d- doesn't have the depth to like use that to extend a scramble to improve position. So like, if I thought Frankie Edgar was any kind of like functional version of himself, I honestly would be picking him to win this fight extremely easily because. He had some okay ideas about dealing with the low kicks of Pedro Munoz and didn't get low kick TKO'd in a five-round fight with Pedro Munoz. Pedro's also a guy that will let you get away and not really hunt you down for low kick TKOs. Whereas Gutierrez, he's insistent. Definitely is. But, like, Frankie in that fight, he he did start, like, timing some good takedowns on Pedro and was getting good entries, but Pedro's a fucking ridiculous scramble. He's really hard to, like, put in positions. I don't know if... Chris Gutierrez is. His loss to Hannibal Selosh was a few years ago now, but I don't think we've really been able, really seen that many people who have tested that and like Barcelos fucking destroyed him when he started getting good takedown entries, which didn't take long. And even in uh, one of his more recent fights against um, Denar Bakary, towards the end of the first round he just like gave his back throwing a spinning back fist and got suplexed on his face and was just stuck in turtle for the rest of the round just getting absolutely smashed and also the fact that like frankie edgar got takedowns and decent um, like lengths of top position against cheeto vera who is fucking huge for bantamweight and is a very good grappler and is just like has significantly improved in defensive wrestling in his more recent run and like was relentlessly pressuring Frankie Edgar whenever they were on the feet and just like constantly keeping Frankie Edgar on his bike and not letting Frankie like put himself in position to be able to do anything because he was constantly just galloping around to try and get Cheeto off of him. Uh, Chris Gutierrez doesn't pressure at all. Again, if I thought Frankie Edgar was... Even as shot as he was when he fought Pedro Munoz, I'd be like, oh, if Frankie Edgar's going to win, he can pressure, like he can get Gutierrez to the cage, he can time him on his kicks, shoot doubles against the cage. Like Gutierrez will constantly square up his stance when just like switching to uh, change direction, even though he has a high mobility style, he's not particularly comfortable like moving in either direction, in either stance. And like I said, I don't think Chris Gutierrez has anywhere near the kind of depth of defensive grappling to be able to handle Frankie Edgar if he's not an absolute shell of a man, which he is. Um, so I'm going to pick Chris Gutierrez by low kick TKO. And we've given Frankie Edgar a lot of shit, but I'm wanting to get low kick TKO'd in his retirement fight. It's fucking lame. And he, he could win. Like, I almost want to pick Frankie Edgar. I, I, I just can't. Yeah, this is a really good matchup for Frankie, and uh, I want him to get low kick TKO'd, but it's like kind of hard for me to trust Gutierrez to do it whenever Gutierrez's low kicking style is mostly like counters, and Frankie Edgar does enough throwaway volume to where he could complicate the shot selection for that. Also, looking at um, Chris Gutierrez's career, he has. Two fights against Timur Valiev, one decision loss, one decision win, and then, also this is completely unrelated, he has a Muay Thai fight against Jimmy Flick and an MMA fight against Jimmy Flick. Weird. Which is very strange. Uh, not related, but just something that I wanted to mention because it's funny. Uh, but I could see Gutierrez just not really knowing how to land a low kick on a guy that's kind of bouncy and is fainting in and out over and over. Like, just entry feints are probably going to complicate his low kicks. Uh, and Frankie Edgar, he, he, can, he can time you, you know? 
and Chris Gutierrez is liable to just get caught like sitting down against the cage for the rest of the round if he gets taken down once. So, though there's the room for like the meme pick of Loki Tikio, which I'm hoping for and uh, choosing to believe that I expect, there's room for Frankie Edgar to make Gutierrez look very bad because Gutierrez has a lot of liabilities. Fuck yeah, I'm gonna pick Frankie Edgar. Okay, I'm gonna pick Loki Tikio by Chris Gutierrez. I'm gonna pick Frankie Edgar by decision against my better judgment like he looked old but basically fine against Cheeto there until Cheeto really started imposing a game on Frankie that I just don't think Chris Gutierrez has in him Chris Gutierrez really is just relying on Cheeto Vera having eaten what was left of Frankie Edgar's soul completely I don't really like Frankie Edgar this is just a good this should be a good fight for him and it, you know it's and it's a, you know I guess it makes sense as a retirement fight because he really should win it and if he wins it then like what a moment to go out on like a young dangerous guy on a six fight win streak and if he loses it's like you know Chris Gutierrez is not Chito Vera or Corey Sandhagen <laughs> he's good but this is not a matchup that Frankie Edgar should be losing at any point in his career where he's like yeah I also think that Chito Vera matchup can be kind of misleading. Because though Cheeto was getting taken down, he was also like guaranteed to win. Basically, he he got he gets taken down in the first two rounds against everyone that attempts it, or mostly at, at least to that point. So it's like not that informative if someone's able to hold him down for like a round, and then in the second round when he decided he wanted to stop being held down, he just did. So Gutierrez just on being like, pretty athletic, might actually be able to get to his feet because Frankie's old. Uh, but then, in a okay, weirder yeah. matchup... Yeah, on the subject of shotness analysis... <laughs> yeah. ...comes up a surprising amount on this show. Dan Hooker is fighting Claudio Poyez. And, yeah, gotta ask myself, how shot is Dan Hooker? Because... Definitely diminished, yes, but you look at his recent run and it's like, okay, yeah, he had a five-round war with Dustin Poirier that he couldn't win and then just got decked by Michael Chandler. Like, whatever, those are things that happen. And then he just, like, really easily beat Nasrat Hakprast, who is not that good, but showed that Dan Hooker, if you just take him out of, like, actual top elite matchups and just give him someone really mediocre outside of the top 15 he can still just easily win an mma decision you know and then he got insta sub by islam akachev which is fine um particularly he had no camp for that fight he didn't even return to new zealand between that and the nasrat hackbrass fight and then he went back down to featherweight which was obviously a terrible idea and got destroyed by arnold allen who's not known as a finisher but like looking at it it kind of made sense it's like oh yeah hooker definitely is diminished durability wise has gotten way too big to where he should be cutting to featherweight and arnold allen is fast so dan hooker's definitely like you know it's a shame because he was always a fun action fighter who relied on his durability and like had to spend it to get into elite matchups and then those fights just ended up just breaking him but the Nasrat Hackpress fight still leads me to believe that he's still like just there enough to be able to beat not very good lightweights. But then I'm like, if he loses to Claudio Poyez, does that even mean he's shot? Because Claudio Poyez, is he good at anything other than knee bars? 
um, good at getting to knee bars. He's good at jujitsu. Other than just being the knee bar guy, I I think that I'm going to pick the casual pick of saying Claudio Puez by knee bar. And if you ask how he's going to get to a knee bar position, my answer would be hard work and dedication. Yeah, because Dan Hook, like he's had his issues as a wrestler in certain matchups, but for the most part, he is just a perfectly competent like, MMA grappler. He just, you know, you know, he, you know, he easily outscrambled and outgrappled Ally Quinta. You know, he's not, he's not useless. And so, um, yeah, I think a lot of the way that he defends takedowns though lends itself to getting knee barred. The way that he'll sprawl, I could see Claudio Puez just being like, oh, I'll shoot a takedown, and then uh, Hooker kind of like... Like, is someone that is able to just limp, like, very cleanly every time, I think would be really hard to knee bar for Puez, but someone that is more likely to actually give him the exchanges where he could pull guard, uh, or or just, like, hold onto the leg and keep chasing for a leg entanglement situation. Okay, do, do you think Claudio Poyes has a path to victory other than knee bar? No, but he hasn't traditionally needed much of one. No. And we haven't really like seen Dan Hooker fight someone whose only thing is to knee bar someone. No, there was that guy who like rolled for a leg entanglement on him and Dan Hooker just knocked him out. I don't remember who that guy was, though, and he definitely wasn't as yeah. good specifically at knee barring people as Claudio Poyes is. But Yeah, and uh, you, have, you have to note that Claudio, Claudio Poyes is like, He's able to defend himself while going for an e-bar. And he's also quite large. Like, I still trust Dan Hooker to not knee-bar himself more than I do, like, Clay Quida. Yeah, I don't think he's going to knee-bar himself, but I think there's a not insignificant chance that he could, like, end up in a clinch exchange where he's defending a takedown and Claudio Puez just kind of pulls guard and then does, a, like, a weird inversion and then just goes for an e-bar, and it, it might work. Or if you try that enough, it just might work. And Puez is pretty durable um, and very young, so he could he could just like, you know, put the fucking youth on him and then not be as tired in, in the second round or third round. I'm gonna pick Dan Hooker by knockout because that's fair. I'm not convinced that Claudio Poyes is good and Dan Hooker is dangerous in the pocket. And if he gets knee-barred, I don't even know if that answers my questions about where he is in his career. Like, even if he gets knee-barred in this fight, I'm like, w- w- would I pick, you know, fucking Mark Casey to beat him now? Probably not. But I don't know. Claudio Poyes, you know, he he's young and athletic and developing and Dan Hooker is unquestionably on the downswing so that that's enough to pick this fight on to be honest yeah and Puez, you know he's, he's the knee bar guy and dan hooker has a lot of leg to knee bar it's incredibly simplistic analysis but i also don't think there's that much to read into because we haven't seen Puez fight anyone remotely similar to dan hooker on the feet or we've seen him fight people similar but not people at the same level and Dan Hooker kind of looked like a shell of himself against Arnold Allen, I think. He landed a check hook, but that's going to happen when Allen's getting real fucking froggy in the like in the first round. Like He, he, he just goes really hard, and then he's susceptible to counters because he squares his stance. He, he should not have been back down at featherweight. Though. He should not have been at featherweight. But uh, I, I just I can see it very clearly, and... Though he plays, if you look at Denneker's record, you see losses to four, like, objectively elite fighters, and then one win over someone that's just 
fine. And I think Puez definitely falls closer to the just fine. But also, I, I think Puez has a window here to just be like, oh, I, I will knee bar this guy that kind of defends takedowns in a way that leads you to getting guard pulled on you if someone's really insistent on wanting a specific submission that you can attain from weird positions. Like, if Puez was an RNC guy, I wouldn't be as confident in his ability to, to get to the win. Or if he was a armbar guy, which he's decent at armbars. Like, if he, had, if he had submissions that are good at establishing from top position... Yeah, he can, he can do it all. He ha- he's good at jiu-jitsu. Yeah, like he's good at he's good at jiu-jitsu. That was the thing about his fight with Clay Guida. Is Clay Guida just just leapt into Claudio Poya's guard and just let him try every submission he knows until one of them worked. Yeah, I'm going to pick Claudio Poya's by a second-round knee bar. It's going to be a hard first round for him, where Hooker is able to somewhat neutralize Poya's grappling, and then Hooker will be a little tired, and Poya's will be less tired, and then Poya's will get an attrition knee bar. Okay, uh, Brad Riddell's fighting Hanato Moicano. That's cool. Yeah, very neat. It, it feels strange because I really want to pick Hanato Moicano by just uh, like maybe bonk and then go over and RNC him. Uh, I'm because... gonna pick Hanato Moicano by bonk and go over and RNC him, uh, and that is because Moicano is just really fucking dangerous if you let him come forward um and brad riddell will let you come forward he has decent defense and counters and stuff but hanato moicano only loses by finish and brad riddell has never finished anyone in his life (laughs) and if he's not if he's not gonna like pressure moicano and exploit his liabilities on the back foot I'm like, yeah, he's just going to be stuck on the end of Moicano's jab, and then Moicano's just going to like ding him with the right hand and get on his back and choke him out in the second round. Yeah, that's what I'm going to pick to happen. Yeah, the math certainly checks out. Uh, can't really find any fault in your math, but I'm also thinking maybe uh, Moicano is is on the downswing. I mean, Brad Riddell seems to be as well, so it, it's not really like good analysis. But Brad Riddell... He's he's a good kickboxer. I I have to not let myself forget, uh, just because he got knocked out by Fiziev and got dinged by a six foot three lightweight that has fought at welterweight, and then also didn't even get knocked out, just got choked. Uh, and then, you know what? Never mind. I'm gonna pick Moicano by submission in the first round. <laughs> Let's go. I was, I was thinking, eh, I don't know, there's there's avenues, like, Moicano's a, a small-ish lightweight, but Riddell <laughs> kind of is, too. Well, I mean, he used to be featherweight, and I don't think Riddell ever could have been featherweight. He was a huge featherweight, and he's an okay-sized lightweight, and this is the thing, he was a really slow featherweight, and he's not a particularly slow lightweight. You know, it was just that, like, uh, Rafael Faziev is, like, faster than most featherweights. Yeah. And, like, you know, Joy Herbert and Alexander Hernandez are both perfectly respectable speed athletes for 155, and Moicano dealt with those with absolutely no issue. They're also a lot worse than Brad Riddell. You know, RDA is a, a great fighter, but he's older, and Moicano took the fight on short notice, of course, so there's context to it. Yeah, but RDA is also a really bad matchup for, for Moicano. Pretty much a complete opposite style matchup because he, he fights so different from Riddell. 
Yeah, and he was the one who was in camp for a five-round fight, and you don't want to be coming in short notice against someone like RDA when he's been ready for five rounds and you weren't. Like, he, you know, he just fought Alexander Hernandez. RDA, you know, uh, up there in his career, but an all-time great fighter and a horrible matchup for Moicano. And someone who can pressure the shit out of him and just handle him on the ground with no issue. It's just like Brand Riddell doesn't do either of those things. Something about the matchup makes me want to pick Riddell to do a cross counter because Moicano hangs his chin when when he jabs. Maybe it's it's. I think it's more that Riddell can hit the body sometimes, and he's he has. Yeah, Moicano's not a fan of that. Yeah, he has great cardio. Uh, he's good at defending takedowns generally. Moicano's great at getting takedowns, or in particular, getting the back, even if he doesn't get the takedown which is really difficult for Riddell, but I don't know. We haven't seen recently Moicano submit someone as confident at defending the back. It's just like, Brad, you, you are a professional kickboxer fighting MMA fighters. Just throw away a right hand and explode forward into a left hook as they hop back exiting. Just do, just do that. You will knock out every MMA fighter you get matched up with. I'm picking Moicano. Yeah, I'm looking at their record right now, and... Or records right now, and Moicano just has like RNC against short, stubby guy, RNC against guy that's like uh, about the same size as him, RNC against guy really tall. He just he just RNCs guys that he's very good at. It. Yeah, like I yeah, it's, it's such a fucking difficult match for Riddell, and him being a good kickboxer kind of doesn't matter because he's not that good of a kickboxer now that I, I genuinely don't think that Brad Riddell is that good. Like I say, he's just going to be stuck on the end of a, a long jab, like letting a guy come forward who, you know, who's just good in that kind of fight. I just don't see what Brad Riddell is going to do to make Moicano uncomfortable uh, and lead to the ways we've seen Moicano lose before. Yeah, this is the most indecisive I've been about a Brad Riddell fight. Well, because against Jalen Turner, there was literally nothing else that could possibly happen other than he gets dinged in the first round and shoots into a guillotine. Pretty much. I, I saw that fight and didn't even do tape for it and just like, oh yeah, Jalen Turner's going to ding him and then choke him or something. Or something adjacent to that and then it ended up being exactly that. Yeah, so. I think you said that exactly, yeah. So, a weird fucking fight. Dominic Reyes is fighting Ryan Spawn. This is a dramatic step down for Dominic Reyes, but he hasn't fought in a while, so it may not be as much of a step down as you think it is. I, I think this is a perfectly acceptable step down for Dominic Reyes just to get back in there and show that, like, you know, lest people forget this three losing streak is, well, I mean, one, <laughs> the, the, the first loss was in my opinion, the most flagrant robbery in the history of the championship level of MMA against John Jones. The absolute, like, I don't see how you can give John Jones three rounds in that fight. Um, you know, then a loss to Jan Blachowicz where he, he admittedly just like, looked like he was having an off night and Jan Blachowicz re revealed himself to be a really bad matchup for Dominic Reyes and how Dominic Reyes' game works. And then um, Jiri Prochowska who we know is just fucking violence and pure death and destruction incarnate. And Dominic Reyes had a very admirable performance against uh, Prohaska where he like, where, where he really like stayed in the fight and hurt Prohaska multiple times. He has only lost to champions. So I don't, I'm glad he's taking this kind of fight just for us to see where he's at. But 
I don't think that, like, unless we're just assuming that the Jiri fight has left him an absolute shell of himself, which, um, you know, it was a bad knockout, but I'm glad to see that he just took a while out after that fight. I guess ring rust could be a concern, but I'd be a lot more concerned about someone coming back into a fight soon after a knockout where they got, like, face-planted by a spinning elbow and stretched it out of the octagon. Um... There's things, Ryan Spann isn't very good, so I think Dominic Reyes is going to beat the fuck out of him and probably knock him out in the first couple of rounds. Ryan Spann is just, like, he's a pretty good athlete and can do a few things offensively, but has no way of proactively imposing the kind of fight that he wants to have, whatever that is, because all of his game just relies on waiting for his opponents to put themselves out of position in order for him to be able to land on them without, like, using feints or throwaways or any, like, real footwork tricks or anything to actually get people to open up. And, like, Dominic Reyes is just a, a pretty responsible southpaw counterpuncher kickboxer guy with really fucking good takedown defense. Um, the people who have really given him issues... Um, as in Jan Blachowicz and Jiri Prochowski. And even, you know, John Jones did make some adjustments other than just be unkillable and have good cardio to win the last couple of rounds of that fight, but it was only the last couple of rounds. Um, Dominic Reyes is a good counterpuncher, like, in the first layer, but if you can extend exchanges and, like, disguise your intentions, he can get a little bit flustered and run out of ideas. Uh, Ryan Spann doesn't do none of that shit. You know, Jerry Prochowska is like an incredibly creative, high-paced striker who constantly builds off his ideas. Jan Blachowicz is just technically the best kickboxer in the division who can throw combinations of kicks and punches to the head and body and build how those combinations flow off of the reactions that he gets from them and can also just like work behind a, a really sharp, long-range jabbing and kicking game where he himself is, like, incredibly hard to win win kicking battles against. So, yeah, again, assuming that Dominic Reyes hasn't just completely spiralled after those couple of hard losses, I don't see any reason that he isn't going to be able to just, like, easily outmaneuver Ryan Spann, uh, destroy him with, like, fade-back left-hand counters, and the southpaw triple attack is just going to be there easily. The credit I want to give Spahn is that, or in the matchup, is that Reyes is a counterpuncher that relies heavily on the first layer and his timing, and he hasn't fought in a while, so, like, his particular counterpunching style does not lend itself well to having large gaps between fights. You normally kind of need to be pretty active to be able to upkeep that type of style. But also, Reyes has more things that he can do than that, and he has a really good chin in Ryan Spawn, though being a hitter, he's not the type of hitter where I think he's actually dangerous against Dominic Reyes. He could also probably just out-wrestle Ryan Spahn if he wanted to. Yeah, I think that's not a good plan, though, because Ryan Spahn is able to guillotine people. Like, it's one of his only avenues to victory in the matchup is if uh, Reyes gets stupid. Yeah, uh, again, if you you just give him a guillotine entry. I could see Reyes maybe doing that if he actually wanted to, but I I don't think he should. Maybe. Or I I don't expect him to really go for that. I think he's probably just going to chill on the back foot easily landing left straight counters until Ryan Spahn's donezo. Which could be like two or three left-hand counters. Yeah, he had a motherfucker of a time with Sam Alvey, training partner of Dominic Reyes and fellow Southpaw. Yeah, so I'm going to pick Dominic Reyes to win any way he wants. And honestly, it would it would be sad. A really high-quality prospect just would burn out instantly uh, after a, a title 
lost that he should have won. Yeah, I mean, not even high-quality prospect. He's literally, like, the lineal champion. Or was the lineal champion at one point because he, he should have beaten Jones. So it would be like seeing a guy that kind of won the belt but never actually got the belt losing to a guy that for a long time has just kind of been a can. Just, but now he's an athletic can that has uh, some power and a guillotine threat if you are like really sloppy about your takedown entries. But we have to remember, Ryan Spawn got outclassed by Anthony Smith in a completely different style of fight, but he got outclassed by Anthony Smith. Just to kind of show the level of the division, Anthony Smith is a good fighter, but if he's outclassing you, you're not. Yeah, that, and that's exactly what this fight is for Dominic Reyes. It's a levels test. It's a can you just easily beat this guy? Yeah, then we have Aaron Blanchfield versus Molly McCann. Kind of rude for them to give Molly McCann a good grappler. But also Molly McCann maybe is competent enough to fang takedowns at this point to deny getting like really easily outclassed yeah. on the ground. Yeah, that's probably going to happen. But that's a hard maybe. Yeah, I'm leaning Aaron Blanchfield by submission or at least a decision win by... I don't know control. why they're even doing this fight. Just have Molly McCann fight cards with other British fighters and give her more girls that she can spinning elbow KO. Like, I guess they're trying to use some of the hype of her spinning elbow KOs to build up with someone who they think is actually a promising prospect with a future. Um, but then maybe Erin Blanchfield should get some spinning elbow KOs. Um, yeah, she is probably just going to out-wrestle Molly McCann easily because that's mostly what she does and she's like pretty good at it and she's like actually athletic whereas Molly McCann isn't but fuck that I'm going to pick Molly McCann by spinning elbow okay I'm going to pick Aaron Blanchfield by submission in the second round yeah okay real quick hits on these early prelims because we have been talking about this card forever and we still want to talk a little bit about the fight night um, Matt Frivola is fighting Ottoman Azaitar that fight's funny because Matt Frivola only gets killed in the first minute um, or fucking destroys his opponent down the stretch, uh, mostly. Uh, Ottoman Azaitar sometimes kills people in the first round, but generally isn't very good. So do with that what you will. Uh, Karolina Kavalkovic. Andre Petrovsky. Do you, do you want you want to talk about the Andre Petrovsky fight, Christian? Really? I mean, we have to mention it. Do we? Yes, because Wellington Tournament actually is—it's is, like a decent fight. Like Wellington Tournament's a, a guy that he can get a good fight out of. <sighs> but then back to Carolina Kovalkiewicz versus Silvana Gomez Juarez, uh, power puncher versus old shot uh, kickboxer. But Carolina is still good and looked at the best she's looked in a long time in her last fight. Yeah, and <laughs> Carolina Kovalkiewicz is definitely a better grappler than Silvana Gomez Juarez. Yeah, I'm picking Carolina by gas pedal. Yeah, Juarez is, like, her only thing is that she does the bonk. Sung Wu Choi versus Mike Giordano, uh, very neat uh, featherweight prospects matchup. Yeah, pretty cool. Mike Trezano, uh, um probably should win, but will probably get hurt at some point. Uh, Monta Jackson, uh, Julio Arce, if this was higher up on the card, we would have talked about it at a decent amount of length, but it's the second fight in the card. Yeah. So all I'm going to say is I think Julio Arce is just going to like dance circles around Montel Jackson and win a really easily easy decision. Because Montel Jackson is huge and athletic, but it's just not very good. Okay. Um, so just real quick, there was a card last weekend. Uh, Marino Rodriguez fought Amanda Lemos. Uh, 
was a kind of weird fight and was one of those performances where somebody has an uncharacteristically cautious performance because they're worried about getting knocked out and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where they get knocked out. Um, I expected Marina Rodriguez, um, just like the pace and pressure that she normally brings to a fight to just be able to break Amanda Lemos. I thought there was definitely going to be some danger for Marina Rodriguez on the way in, but I thought that would mostly be early, and if she just like pushed clinch exchanges, then she'd be able to just take some of the wind out of Lemos' sails early and start being able to push her back uh, uh, and and just break her down the stretch. But she she was definitely concerned about the power and about the counter punching, uh, with good reason. You know, she, she just let the explosive power puncher who gasses just hang around and get reads so by the time they were in the third round you know and it seemed it seemed like she was thinking you know i'll take the first couple of rounds off and then you know lemosh will be tired but she didn't do anything to make lemosh work to actually get her tired and you're not going to make professional mma fighters like make themselves tired just by hanging around and letting them do what they want at their own pace. So by the time it was the third round and Marina Rodriguez was actually willing to exchange, Amanda Lemos was still perfectly fresh and like had a feeling for the time and distance and just fucking dinged Marina really hard with a right hand on entry that kind of froze her and then just Lemos just like chased her back to the cage and it was just a bunch of uncontested punches and it was stopped standing. It was a slightly early stoppage, I think, but not really that upsetting. And Lemo, honestly... Now, people have talked about the stoppage, but I, I just don't really have a problem with early stoppages in general, to be honest. Yeah, and good on Lemos for not gassing herself with her own pace, because you say that MMA fighters won't do that, but a lot of pro MMA fighters will gas themselves with their own pace. So, like, good on Lemos for at least pacing herself enough to have the firepower to go into the third round looking pretty much completely fresh. And she did, because they did not do much in the first two rounds. No. Uh, but then in a very interesting fight, uh, Neil Magny Darce choked Daniel Rodriguez. Yeah, where well, Daniel Rodriguez actually, like, for who he is in the matchup, had a reasonably disciplined performance where... You know, he tried to, like, actually work at range and just, you know, throw away jabs to get Magny skittering backwards because Magny's, like, defensive footwork and ring craft is a fucking nightmare. He will just skitter backwards with his chin out and just let his ass bounce off of the cage. You know, and D-Rod was, like, doing nice stuff, like, you know, throwing away to the body and catching Magny on, on the exits. He was being reasonably disciplined about just not walking into clinches. He actually hurt Magni really bad in, I think, the third round. But, I mean, D-Rod has had a tendency of overthrowing throughout his career as it is, and, like, everyone overthrows against Neil Magni because they're stuck on the end of his, like, 900-inch long arms while he's jabbing you, and, like, people just overthrow into the clinch constantly, and Magni's become way more proactive about uh, pursuing those clinch entries. So, you know, D-Rod really kind of dropped the ball where after he fucked up Neil Magny and got on top in the third round. I get D-Rod, you know, his thing isn't being a tight top position grappler, but Neil Magny, one of his, like, perhaps the weakest area of his entire game is working off of his back. And if you've hurt Neil Magny and you're in his guard, you can just stay there. And, yeah, he let Magny back up onto the feet 
overthrew into the clinch and got himself dust. Yeah, I think uh, Dan Rodriguez focused a little bit too much on tactics for going forward and not enough on how to stand his ground. Because his mechanics are too shaky for him to ever stand his ground effectively in this matchup without entering a clinch that he doesn't want to enter. If he had something like the ability to frame as Magni enters or a nice left uppercut to the body to just like stand his ground with, or even if he had just a, a nice check hook, that those are things that could have stopped Neil Magni from just doing one-two blitzes. But he didn't have any of those, so anytime Magni decided to go forward... It was completely free for him, and then he got get off the cage, which is normally the biggest issue for Magni is whenever he gets put on the cage, if he can't just go forward to get off the cage. Because he's not great at circling off, he doesn't really have uh, any avenue aside from just a takedown attempt to get him off the cage in matchups against most cultured strikers. But Dana Rodriguez, his mechanics are just too shitty for him to be able to actually stop clinch exchanges or grappling exchanges that he doesn't want to happen from happening. Uh, while also putting in enough effort to land hard on Magni. Because if he just tried to, like, tepidly jab him, Magni has the parity at, uh, like, effective range, even though uh, he he has much longer arms. Magni doesn't necessarily fight to that strength very well, so I expected that D-Rod would have a lot more success being able to just jab with him. But D-Rod just looked very flustered by the, the length. And... It, not the first one. And he was doing good work with throwing away things and then landing like huge power to the body. But his mechanics, again, just not really tight enough to be winning off of a specifically tactical performance. And then it seemed like Neil Magny just more so knew how to get the fight where he wanted to eventually and then did it. So good on Neil Magny for submitting Den Rodriguez. Yeah, he overtook George St. Pierre as the overall. Uh... A leader in wins, a welterweight. What a fucking guy! Um, you know, I, I was talking about this. People talk about Neil Magny as like an IQ test fight. I don't think that's really fair because a typical IQ test fight, you know, a classic classic example is someone like Jeremy Stevens, who is definitely a good fighter. But if you're an elite fighter for the division and you have like the stylistic adaptability and athletic goods to just be able to do like three or four things and fight against type to win the fight that Jeremy Stevens always loses. You know, that's what I consider an IQ test fight. Whereas it's very rare that just like a reasonably good technician can just put together a game plan to diffuse Neil Magny um, if they don't have a very specific set of both skills and athletic traits. And Neil Magny has made very good fighters just, just kind of look dumb because he's just such a weird, unique style matchup for the division that losing to doesn't necessarily say that much about your ceiling in the division, but beating shows that do have like either the level of athleticism or just that very specific skill set to be able to showcase all of the technical flaws that are there in Neil Magny's game. But it's pretty fucking hard to get to them at this point. Yeah, and then the... Rest of the main card had some weird TKOs or, or, or submissions. Yeah, I will say the the Derek Menon versus Noir Dembeke fight gave me strong feelings of criminal intent. Yeah. Um, just with the fact that the betting line shifted massively in favor towards Noir Dembeke in the time 
that the fighters were making their walkout in which something became apparent about Derek Minner's knee, which is all just made all the more fucky when you also consider that Derek Minner's coach is James Krause, who has recently been at the centre of this whole controversy surrounding uh, the UFC cracking down on the laws against like fighters and people who are involved in fight camps betting on fights. And James Krause having recently like gone on the MMA hour to flex his professional gambling pr- credentials and his like gambling touting business. And, and then, um, yeah, Derek Minner's uh, leg fell off the yeah. first time he threw a kick and he got TKO'd. So, yeah, he threw a kick that, like, it makes kind of sense that he would have injured his leg doing it, but also I've seen so many fighters throw a kick like that and not injure their leg. He really just landed with the foot on a body shot, and then it looked like he kind of hyperextended his ankle a little bit. Which you don't want to do, but you don't see many fights just over immediately, because, you know, MMA fighters mostly have pretty shitty distancing on their kicks. By the way, I'll just say for legal reasons, I'm not accusing James Krause of anything. I'm simply like uh, listing a series of things that happened. You draw whatever conclusions you want from all that. Yeah. And then uh, Tagir Ulanbekov, standing guillotine choke Nate Manis was all right. That was cool. Yeah. Nate, it was a cool submission. Nate Manis shouldn't have been a flyweight. I guess he lost to a Dagestan guy at Bantamweight, and he was like, I know, I can beat a smaller one. And he just lost a lot quicker. Yeah. Manis looked fucking terrible. Uh, he looked bad. I will say Grant Dawson versus uh, Marco Madsen wasn't a great fight. Um, we didn't talk about it because we knew it was just going to be a grindy wrestlers match. But uh, I, I did, like, as we were approaching the fight, just get an overwhelming sense of joy when I just realized, oh, yeah, Grant Dawson is going to out-wrestle Marco Madsen so easily because Marco Madsen is an Olympic silver medalist in Greco-Roman who came into MMA later in life. And Grant Dawson is a somewhat limited but young and well put together, like, actual MMA wrestler who can do a single leg. Mark Madsen's never seen a single leg in his life. Uh, He's developed some Dan Henderson Greco-Roman power and dropped Dawson with a right hand early in the fight, but after that got taken down so easily and uh, let Dawson keep his back and submit him so easily. Yeah, in the third round, uh, Madsen actually landed another good shot, but it was less of a knockdown, more of like a, just kind of a ding. And uh, Dawson was like, okay, well, I landed a couple leg kicks in the second round. I'll just, like, spam them. And then he got, like, a low kick knockdown, basically, and then easily won. Uh, what else happened? Uh, Mario Batista got a cool submission over Benito Lopez. Uh, you know, armbar from an inverted triangle. Don't see that every day. Mario Batista's pretty cool. Pollyanna Viana got a sick knockout in 47 seconds, which, love to see yeah, that. that was nice. Uh, just, like... Uh, she showed the shift and then, uh, like on the back foot, and then shifted backwards again, and then just started kind of unloading. Yep, just dusted Ginny Fry in a minute. That was fun. Uh, and then the best fight on the card, I think, uh, Jake Hadley versus Carlos Candelario, was two southpaws that have uh, a lot of neat little boxing tactics that also know how to put kicks into their game. Uh, they were both landing nice body kicks. They were both doing like you know, short combinations ending with low kicks. There was, by the end, a lot of Jake Hadley having figured out 
Candelaria's offense and just being able to hide behind Dracula guard and like short frames or just like long guard and then getting Candelario leaning back and then blasting him to the body. He got Candelario reacting to everything he was doing by the end and then when they got to the ground he got him in a triangle choke and started spamming elbows on him and just kind of wore him down from that position. Vicious elbows from a triangle. Always just, if you're trying to finish triangles in MMA, just fucking elbow the guy. It's hard to worry about, like, defending triangles if you're just getting elbowed, it hurts. And, yeah, it, it just, like... Because like, Candelario's a really solid scrambler and uh, grappler, but it, it, it just seemed like he was so tunnel-visioned on the elbows that it, it just let Hadley work on, like, finishing, getting the angle he needed to get the choke. Like, once he got a hold of uh, Candelario's leg, it was donezo. Yeah, and we have to mention, uh, Tamiras Vidal got a body shot flying knee TKO against Ramona Pasquale. Just did yeah, a... It was a fuck, it was smallest Rovereem shit. <laughs> yeah, did like a weird knee to the head, and then was like, you know what, I'm going to flying knee the body, and then hit her right in the solar plexus, and Ramona Pasquale fell to the ground, looking like she was going to die. Yeah, it was nasty. Overall, pretty good card. Yeah, it, it, it kind of over-delivered. Just, I mean, you know, somewhat of a lackluster main event that at least had, like, a pretty cool finish, I guess. Okay, cool. Those are the fights. If you enjoyed this content and all the other great stuff that the fight site puts out, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where a pledge of just $5 gains access to a huge library of really high-quality analytical content. Um, also gains access to a Discord server where we have a huge community of... Uh, really cool fight fans from a variety of different backgrounds. Fun to talk to. We always have interesting discussions, get in the VCs and watch fights together and stuff. It's always a good time. Come hang out. This has been the Forbidden Technique podcast. And catch us next week where we're going to be recapping uh, Israel Adesanya's devastating title loss as well as UFC Fight Night headlined by Derek Lewis versus Sergey Spivak. Banger. Bye. We'll see you guys then. Peace. Later.